0: Welcome back to the hustle podcast today. I'm here with Douglas Ferguson. He's the president of voltage control an agency that innovates trains and transforms companies. They do a lot of workshop they're workshop masters. He is the co author of the book start within that just came out. He is also the author of beyond the prototype, uh, which came out in 2019. Is that correct, Douglas? That's correct. Uh, he is also the creator and organizer of a really awesome event called control the room, which I was lucky enough to attend its first iteration. It's been a while since we've chatted. Thank you so much for your patience with me as I tried to figure out how in the world would I record podcasts from home in this weird uh, situation. Thank you for making time. It's glad to have you here.
1: Yeah, it's good to be here. And, you know, it's uh, certainly trying times and it's, uh, it's fun to riff and collaborate and find new ways to come together.
0: So um, I'm curious, could you just give us a quick overview of who Douglas Ferguson is and what keeps you up at night? What are the things that you're uh, passionate about?
1: Yeah. wow. you know, not much is keeping me up at night because I'm working so much these days. (laughs) It's like, there's so much to learn and respond to. And, you know, I feel that I have a duty to support the facilitation community that I've built and And as I started to have some of these conversations around the impacts of COVID and the future of facilitation, it was clear that people were curious and wanted to know or desperate to figure this stuff out. And and so that gave me even more drive to to sort through this stuff and explore new things. And so, so yeah, it's been a lot of late nights. And so when I do, when it is time to sleep, I'm, I'm sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, but good. yeah how who I am, how I got started I you know i early in my career, I was a software developer, and um, that led me into lots of different kind of ex- just experiences where that I'd learned so many things that they just don't teach you in school um, It's kind of like the school of hard knocks, if you will, and um, one of those lessons was that technology for the sake of technology is kind of gets us nowhere and a real respect for true design. And as I started to move into leadership positions and um, typically holding a role of CTO and working with of you know, leading a team of engineers and, and testers and product and design, uh, I, I got even more curious and went deep on uh, how we motivate people to make better decisions and to work better together. And, and then post my last startup, Twyla, I started voltage control, um, and interestingly enough, I was just imagining that I would be a a solo kind of fractional CTO, where I would kind of come in and help people think about using these these techniques. And um, the more I did the work, the more um, attention uh, I brought to these methods and and just realized there's opportunities to... Uh, to create something bigger than myself. And so started to develop voltage control into more of an agency. So let's say a a fleet of facilitators that are, you know, not only part of the voltage or the control of the room community, but bringing them in to work directly on voltage control projects. And so those, those look like anything from public workshops that you can, pay tickets or, um, or purchase tickets to attend and learn some new skills as they relate to facilitation and, and adjacent um, capabilities. And then also going into companies and helping them solve problems. So, you know, the methods vary quite drastically depending on the the use case or the problem that uh, they're trying to solve. So, you know, if it's leadership development, it might look a little bit different than if it's kind of product development work. But ultimately, we are helping people make better decisions and kind of having better meetings.
0: The better meetings part is something that I think about often because, you know, just like you, I mean, we work with a lot of different organizations that are very talented. You know, they have, they have skilled people, they have domain knowledge, but it's not the case all the time, but it seems like a lot of times, you know, a reason why someone can't move fast enough or, you know, get things done is because they don't know how to work well together or they don't know how to, you know, change the way they work, where they can do things a little bit differently. Is getting into this space what you expected? Like, did you did you think that when you got into doing this that you would be helping people learn how to work better together and having things like better meetings? Or did, and how have you seen that sort of transform the way people work? Or did you think that it would be, you know, more about like just getting getting to work? faster or better? Like, I guess the question is like, what, like based on what you're doing now, how is that different than what you imagined it would be when you first started your company?
1: Well, it's, it's quite a bit different. You know, I, I definitely come from the lean school of kind of startup world where we're kind of always testing and learning and responding. And honestly, it's, it's also a heavy dose of, I love of complexity theory and uh, you know, very much finding ourselves in a complex adaptive system more and more. Um, I think that that applies to everyone nowadays. And, and so my approach is to constantly probe and and understand and, and then based on what I'm, what I'm seeing then, then adapt. And so I think also that kind of mirrors a lot of my interest and passion is this idea of, of change I've always found when, whenever I've been in an organization that's gotten kind of stagnant or kind of plateaued out, that's when I start to get really bored and start kind of <laughs> questioning what, what, I'm, what I'm here for. But, um, but whenever there's a lot of change and there's a lot of uncertainty and there's things to figure out, that's, that's my sweet spot, right? And so I, I think that it's been a, it's somewhat of a constant evolution as, I, as we learn more and, and understand the gaps and the needs Um, like for instance, when, when I first started, I was imagined myself as a fractional CTO. Um, I learned things about what that business would look like. And, and specifically that there was, it was clearly going to be me plus like some hangers on that would, that would leave shortly after, or, you know, they, they viewed it as like a temporary thing. Like, Oh, I'll do this between full-time jobs. And there a CTO, not many CTOs had had the interest in kind of being part of an organization like that, and so I thought, man, if, there's, if I'm going to be able to build something bigger than myself, then I kind of have to shift the model a little bit. And simultaneously, I was starting to get a lot of requests for design sprints. People were seeing a lot right. of value in them, and and then as I did more of that work and and dove deeper into the facilitation, I started to realize that there was a lot of silos in, in the space. And, um, the people tend to stick to their, their specific methodology and did not steer out of those lanes much. And I thought that was a real shame because there's a lot of magic in the chocolate and peanut butter versus being so rigid and dogmatic about a specific approach. Now it does provide some challenges on the marketing because like, people like to see something packaged up and specific for like, this is the solution for healthcare. But, um, but we kind of take a a broader kind of view and this is the solution for humans. Like this is humans, uh, have behaviors and we find tools that help humans come together and collaborate better together. And, um, and so we can apply those to lots of different settings. And, and so I guess the, the short answer is, man, I've seen it change quite a bit and, um, it's, it's a really, really, really fun journey, especially, um, building the facilitation community, because uh, I've always been a community builder. And, uh, I did that uh, with the CTO group and the CTO summit. So just kind of applying some of that, the same love of community and creating um, you know, a, a, a practice of purpose and how, how we bring together these various points of view so that we can we can all um, help each other and support each other. And I think that some really fast, fantastic things can happen. And I think we're just now starting to see how the, that facilitation community is really benefiting from, from each other in this time of kind of transitioning to more virtual work.
0: Oh, wow. Well. okay. So many questions. <laughs> the first one you mentioned uh, about like packaging things up and being dogmatic. And I realized that everyone, everyone starts somewhere and there are times and places for all this stuff. I was having a conversation with Steve Portigal, hope I'm not butchering his name, but the first time I ever talked to him today and this came up, right? Like the, like knowing when, like when you like follow a set process or knowing when you need to, you hear an indicator in someone's voice or in a, you know, in a cultural indicator or something where you realize, okay, well we need to do something a little bit differently. How often do you, you find your like when, when you're facilitating a workshop or a sprint, like even something that's like back to like maybe what most people that are listening to this podcast can relate to this something like a design sprint? What percentage of the sprints that you run are run the same way versus completely custom and mm. tailored?
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's fascinating. Um, I'm fairly cut and dry when it comes to design sprints only because I, you know, I learned them from Jake. Um, there was a very specific kind of formula that he created and, and, um, and kind of polished and dialed in, but there's like, there's also the, the, the Google kind of divergent kind of approach, which is like pretty much like a light structure built on top of design thinking. And the reason that I'm fairly dogmatic around the term design sprint is just because of the lineage of how I learned it and, and how I see the, the, the benefits of, the defined structure, because if we don't have that defined structure, it it can be so loose that teams that have not seen this stuff before or have seen it, have read about it, but aren't really doing it. They're really going to like, it's it's sort of like training wheels, right? I mean, it's very much like training wheels for design thinking and, you wouldn't go look at training wheels and go, well, man, you know, why are these things round? Let me make them triangular or like whatever, right? Like what if they have spikes in them? It's like, no, they, they, they can't, they serve their purpose. They do what they do and reducing the variables and the decisions that need to be made means that teams can quickly adopt this stuff and start to get those aha moments of what it means to have a culture around this, these types of behaviors. But the thing is, is what we're not dogmatic about is that everything needs a design sprint or every Thing that's even remotely similar to that or every team that has that similar problem should get a design sprint. And so sometimes we look at it and the team's very aligned. So it's like, wow, we don't really need, necessarily need to do the alignment work. Let's just do a, a, a rapid prototyping type of session. In fact, we we're just about, we've been doing enough of them that we're going to like slap a name on it. And um, we're doing these little design dashes, we're calling them. That's cool. Where it's like, they're, they're, already, they're already very clear And so we don't need to do much of the mapping stuff. It's like, they were going to go build the stuff anyway. Let's just hit the pause button for a second and like do it in a way that's going to get them some deep insights versus just throwing a bunch of development resources at something and seeing what sticks.
0: All right. Awesome. So under that definition, okay, moving, moving a little bit deeper. Yeah. I know that you're involved in uh, the startup community pretty heavily. You're a, you're a mentor at capital factory, but you also work with, you work with startups and you work with major corporations. couple questions. What are the main uh, reasons why a company would bring voltage control in? And then uh, secondly, like, how do you know when you need to, when there's a, a right fit for a design sprint or when that's not the right thing? Cause I think a lot, like, I don't know if you see this, but sometimes companies will come to us and they're asking for a design sprint when they really just need something different. Like you mentioned a second ago, like you just need to prototype something or you need an alignment meeting. I'm asking this question to help people that are listening to this that are maybe in trying to figure out how they sort of grow their workshop and capabilities to realize when, when something is or is not a right fit for a design sprint. The second thing that I wanted to ask you are really related to that would be because all things being like require adaptation, innovation also includes the way that we work, right? The economy is changing. It's changing right now. We're having to run workshops and do work remotely you know, the way things, the way people are uh, spending money and doing work changes, like how do you apply these same innovation principles to the way that you work with clients? I know there was like, there was like three questions that are all the board, sure. but I was hoping you could.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so the third question was more about how you, how you adapt this stuff into the virtual environment
0: as an example, but more about like, how is uh, voltage control sort of adapting the way that it works to the way that the, mm. the world is changing. Yes, um, got it. Yeah. Including like like things like maturity levels and organizations changing, and what people are buying changing, and things like that.
1: Sure, yeah, got it. Well, the main reasons people will hire us. Uh, one big one is that they've they've decided they need a design sprint, and they they look us up. We've built a lot of credibility around that, and so you know there's just a ton of inbound around design sprints. Absolutely. And you know, I think one reason why they might hire us for a design sprint is, in addition to that credibility we also have a very kind of pragmatic and kind of uh, trusted kind of advisor type of personality. And so when people approach us, we're starting to have that question you just asked around, is it time to have a design sprint? And so we're, we're kind of already starting to um, to have that conversation. And, you know, before the call, we talked about whether, you know, the distinction between a consultancy and a, and a, and um, an agency, And I would say that, like that, is the mode. That is the amount of consulting that we do is around, like what you need from a facilitator, or what you we're helping design and advise on the best way to meet and what things your team's going to benefit from. But then when we're doing the work, it's more about unleashing the team, right? So it's like enablement and capability building and that when we're having that conversation around when should you have a design sprint? I think, um, it can be, it can be a difficult thing to to understand because there's so many like contextual issues, right? Like where it's like, um, if there were an easy question, then people wouldn't ask it so much. Right. (laughs) Um, one thing that I think is a telltale sign that it's not a necessarily a good time for a design sprint is when, um, someone in leadership is like read the book and it's like, we need to do a design sprint. You know, they're just like, they just think it's like they're hammer looking for a nail kind of thing, right? Yeah. That's a telltale sign when I can't hear this, uh, like this deeply articulated purpose, right? And like the first exercise in a design sprint is the goal. And it's still, even if the goal is well articulated, it's still helpful to do that on day one because we can start to pick apart like inconsistencies and understanding and make sure we get to a high level of alignment. And um, so that's, that's a great place to start. Like, can we articulate a goal that is pithy enough that we want to devote the team five days to solving it? And here's another telltale sign. Whenever someone talks about shortening it, then I start to really dig in on why. Because if it's not important enough that you're, where you're unwilling to invest the time, then there's probably something else that you need, or it's not a big enough problem. And, you know, sometimes I see people wanting to do a design sprint on a new feature. And it's like, well, that's, you know, the scope is not big enough. Um, but ultimately, the, the high-level stuff is like, you know, if the team is like like hopelessly stuck, then like a design sprint could be a good solution. There's other ways to get teams unstuck. Um, and they, they're honestly... There, there could be even components of a design sprint put in place, but if they're hopelessly stuck on a product that users could, the team could benefit from hearing from users or customers of that product, whether it's software, hardware, a, a, an experience, service design, any of that um, could apply and industry doesn't matter. It's really about, are you trying to launch a new project? Or are you stuck and stalled out on an existing one? then it's just a matter of like figuring out how you prototype and who you need to put in front of. Now the critical pieces are that it has to be a big enough problem and there has to be that kind of need to to learn from users, which is like fairly common. The thing I will say that not not enough people think about is if the team if you've got a team that's been reading all the blog posts and they've been spouting all the things and they can they can talk long about like the importance of of user experience and, um, and, you know, talking to humans and all the books and, you know, it, do they like lean UX or do they want to move slower? Any of this stuff, right? They could be, um, debating all these things, um, every day, but are they doing that? You know, are they actually prototyping stuff? Right. Are they actually collecting user insights or is someone sitting in, in an office typing up a roadmap that then it goes to development and then developers are like, hey, I need a mock-up for the screen. And like are you treating your company like a feature factory? And if so, then the design sprint can be a fantastic way for you to get an aha moment around why design matters. And you know, you're gonna get great benefits around the project or the the, the even if it's just like a glorified feature. You'll get benefit, direct benefit. So it's going to move that forward in a meaningful way. You're probably going to get a bunch of insights about everything else because when you put it in front of the user, it's going to be in the context of this broader offering, the service, and the user is going to say the darndest things and then leadership starts to understand, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And I've seen that enough times to know that it's a, it's a real pattern and shouldn't be ignored, that there are teams that are out there even attending the conferences, but they're just not following through on the the day to day like actual like execution of of these t- of these techniques and so g- i think going through it once is like the training wheels like everyone else in the organization sees it it's disruptive enough to where you can kind of shake off the the typical behavior but you have to make sure that you follow through and you maintain that culture cuz otherwise you know it can easily fizzle out
0: awesome thanks i have s- Still have so many questions to ask <laughs> you, but before we go into more questions, I was hoping that you could uh, give a quick summary of your two books and your uh, conference.
1: yeah, of course. The first book was beyond the prototype which i I was kind of laying out some of the some of the benefits of thinking about you know what happens after a design sprint and it really was born out of observing these phenomenons of people gaining all this momentum and then not really knowing what to do with it. And, you know, part of it's even being prepared that it's going to happen. You know, a lot of times people get sold on the design sprint cause it's like, um, they get really excited about traction that other companies have made and they really, really want it. And so they get really, really focused on convincing leadership to do it that they lose sight of the fact that this is just the first step on a big, big journey. And so you kind of come out of this thing with a ton of momentum and then you go and you're not prepared to do the next steps. It can easily, you can easily kind of just lose some of that momentum because you're not kind of there ready to foster it. You kind of have to play a little, you're playing some reset and so things kind of drift down and there's other reasons too. And and I basically went through kind of a six step process to, to think about these different things to guard against losing that momentum and making sure you get the most out of your insights. Cause there really is a lot of, a lot to be gained and you don't want to lose any of it because, and, and it's a difference. The, 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 interesting thing is I think people do just fine, um, without thinking about these things, but it's the difference between being good and great. So I think that it's, it's been a, a fun conversation to have. The recent book is called start within and, I uh, wrote that with Karen Holst And it's this is more focused on how people with ideas and with inside large companies can can realize their dreams and um, even kind of mold out their perfect job, because, uh, you know, a lot of times we see potential and what could be done if things were just a little bit different. And um, we're kind of giving them the manual to go do those things, and and the and, and the confidence, right? So you, there's a lot of activities you can do to to unlock um, understanding around how assumptions will stifle us, how organizational structure and you know the the process uh, around how your organization does things, and and how you need to be aware of of. Just the maturity of your organization, and and even stakeholders, and how to talk to your manager. So lots of different like tips and techniques. Because what ultimately what we found was that there's so many, and I'm sure you've seen this. There's so many you know innovation books focused on the executive and the manager, and you know strategy and culture and mm-hmm. these things. They're very important. And we thought long and hard about there's this fun, this much needed let's say support for more bottoms up innovation, because if you look at the best innovation programs, they're really, they're really activating the entire organization. They're they're building a propensity for innovation. So the best innovation teams don't just like, like hold it all in to those five people that are like ordained to, to be able to innovate. No, they figure out how to make a a point of view, disseminate that point of view and just like illuminate the rest of the organization and so we, we were seeking to create a handbook that, that could help in that, um, in that mission, that process. And not only could doers get to get the book and, and learn how to be more effective, but um, leaders could also um, give it out to as a way to help them with their, um, their goals of kind of preparing all of their people for innovation.
0: I, I love hearing things like that. Uh, it reminds me, Have you heard that story of like the Tabasco Hot sauce story?
1: Man I don't know if I've heard this one.
0: So someone told it to me, it may, it, I may not have all the truths, but the story as I've heard it is that there was a period of time where Tabasco, their, their profits were, they just weren't making a profit. And so they were trying like in the leadership uh, circles at the company, they were trying all these different things. Like how, how are we going to increase our profit? Are we going to rebrand? Are we going to make, you know, four different kinds of hot flavors of hot sauce, all this stuff. And they finally decided as story goes that they would um, get their, open it up for the whole company. And, um, someone, uh, who came up with an idea was someone that, uh, worked, you know, like at the factory level, like bottled hot sauce. And they just said, well, just make the hole in the top of the bottle, 10% bigger. And so they made the hole in the top of the bottle, 10% bigger. So when you pour Tabasco hot sauce, you're pouring more, therefore you need to buy more. So like, you know, it wasn't about like ne- ne- desperately needing to innovate different new flavors. It was just about needing to innovate at the production level about what would, you know, create more demand. And I think that, like, that's a, when I hear stories about that, it reminds me of stories like that where I, I do think that if people are more open to uh, hearing the ideas of the people that are actually making the sausage, if you will, you can learn a lot.
1: Yeah, and that, uh, that's a that's a beautiful story and, and I love it when you can unleash everyone and you know create a truly inclusive culture right people talk a lot about inclusion and it's like well how does everyone really have a voice how do you make decisions and uh, uh, you know is there is there truly um, an ability for everyone to participate at, 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 at those levels uh, I will say the cautionary tale there is um, a lot of times when people hear those kinds of stories the conclusion they jump to is like, Oh, we just need a we we just need an idea collection process. <laughs> so, you know, they just yeah. put the idea box up or whatever. And, you know, I think that creative thinking and conversation requires structure yeah. to be super really valuable and I think that's where you know, where some of these techniques really shine when you can scale that to large groups. Right. And it's not just like, Oh, here's the, here's the comment box just like drop these <laughs> right. ideas in. Cause who's, who's responsible for judging those things Yeah, as, as one big problem. Right. If you don't like diversity of ideas is fun. If you have no diversity of observation, like you might as well have no diversity of ideas. Cause like, I'm not necessarily going to realize that that thing's a good idea just because it got surfaced from someone who was on the ground with the, with the, with the, with the information. So the point is like, I think people get hung up on like, Oh, all we got to do is harvest a bunch of ideas. And I think it's thinking about structures from a, how do we open up the conversation? How do we make sure there's time to explore the novel and unique collisions? And then how do we close it down? And, um, and I even think about the agenda design, from a not only thinking about um the and this kind of comes back to your question about how are we always adapting and i think part of it is just the fact that a lot of what we do is bespoke of course we package stuff up for repeatability like if we see something if we get asked three times to design essentially the same thing then we just put a name on it and then now there's this other thing we can sell but as soon as someone else calls up with something slightly different we're not we're designing something new right and the way we design new things is like through backwards design so we start with the with the objectives. If it's if we're teaching something, what's the learning objective? What do we hope that they that they know? And then, then we'll then we'll create milestones and back into that objective. So that destination, that deliverable that we're hoping to accomplish. Like where we'll have these milestones, and then we can layer in activities that kind of get us to those milestones. And so these milestones form as assessment points. And so we can detect if we've gotten to where we need to go. And, um, and that way we're not just checking boxes on, did we do this thing or that thing? We know that if we achieve, if we achieved goals and our sub sub goals, and if we didn't, then we can course correct. And maybe at the end of the day, we didn't get all five goals down, but we at least got four versus if you're just checking boxes on doing things, you might get zero.
0: So on the topic of doing these things in a structured way where, where you're, you're listening appropriately. And you're doing these things more appropriately. How can this benefit a company? Mm. And and on the other end of the spectrum, like uh, what kind of attitudes could really limit innovation or or cause uh, the investment of a a workshop like this to really backfire?
1: So companies can benefit from uh, is that comment I made earlier around often it's like we're going to move from just being adequate to being great. We're going to move from you know, people just being okay with what's happening around the office or, or the work we're doing to being really jazzed and totally bought in. Like, we talk about, like, you think about this whole notion of buy-in. Well, buy-in assumes that you're going, you're selling something. And that's what ends up happening, you know? We're like it, It's like pitches. And what if you could, like, co-create your idea and your, well, mm-hmm. you know, your solution, the work, the 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 plan, whatever it is, whatever prototype we're making, we're going to co-create that together, and then now there's 100% ownership around with everyone, and they're 100% going to support it. So you're building deeper advocacy, and even people that weren't in the room are going to get bought in because those people are going to be out there raving about it, and like, and then the holy grail is if if um, this stuff becomes infectious. And people start mimicking these things because they're like, this was amazing. I want every meeting to be like this. And then um, even if they don't call it the right thing or they've totally distorted it, the fact that like you're taking some intention to the work and to the gatherings has a deep, deep impact that ripples throughout the organization.
0: Yeah, there was an example in the past of, we were we were in a design sprint for a company that had been it was, they were a startup, but they'd been in, they'd been a startup for like five years. Yep. And the sprint that we facilitated was the first time in at least three years where all of the people were in the same room together. And what we, one of the things that we realized in facilitating that, uh, that design sprint, and it was a design sprint, was that um, the biggest issue that they had wasn't that they didn't know what they needed to create, is that they just didn't exactly know how to work together. And so, you know, our facilitator, facilitator came to me and said, well, you know, like I see these indicators and I think that like what might be more important is just like focusing the rest of the workshop on how can we sort of create a better environment for these individuals to work together. Uh, and we we ultimately decided that we would kind of just kind of pivot towards that. And, uh, at, you know, like just to kind of set the context at the beginning of this sprint and day one, the CEO and their employees they were they were yell- they were physically yelling at each other. Wow. And by the end of the day 5 they were they were high-fiving each other and the CEO said like, "Hey, you know, like I've always felt that our team is uh strong, but I felt like we've all been racing around the track but just in different swim lanes and this is the first time in 3 years I felt like we were running the same race." Do you see that happen often too and do you do you often pivot or recommend pivoting the structure and context of a workshop when you see larger cultural issues arise within these workshops?
1: So yes and no. We, it, it certainly happens. We, we, we generally do a pretty good job of ferreting that out before we're actually in the throes of some a bigger workshop because we'll do we'll do little mini workshops as like onboarding and, um, and during sales. So you think of it as a discovery. Uh-huh. And so it's really nice because they get to see us in action and we get to understand the, the, you know, what makes them tick a little more. And so we're starting to understand some of those things. And often if, if we see big concerns, we'll, we'll sort of repackage the offering and, or, or kind of go back to and say, well, we might, yeah. we might need to fo- refocus this a little bit. What do you think about this? And so like, Sometimes we, depending on how, how bad it is, sometimes we'll do both. So that, I mean, that's a real Jedi move though. (laughs) You know, when you're like, we're still going to take this design sprint, like focused on the thing you want to do, but I'm going to be working on the team as we go. And it, it's a lot to manage, and it, it, they can't be completely dysfunctional, right? But, like, there's a lot of repair that can be. In fact, I did a, um, we got to have a case study coming out, actually. Um, the International Development Bank had a, a group um, that was an internal IT group, and they were, it was really fascinating because they wanted to, they wanted to um, really rebrand how people perceived them as a group. Because I think the they they had a, a mission statement that was you know, pretty bold and they were really proud of it, but none of the rest of the organization didn't view them in that same way, or they kind of were concerned about, about how they were perceived. And so they were using a design sprint to like design a portal or some kind of website or some kind of like image that they could present to better understand, you know, how they could shift that mindset or that perception across the organization. So it's like, it was already somewhat kind of you know team dynamic focus right because it was like their identity they were working on and the fascinating thing is the leader of that team she told me i learned so much this week about capabilities of my team and how they think and and you know she they they had skills that she wasn't even aware of that came to light yeah and then another story that i think about is um, was a startup here in Austin, and it's similar to what you were saying. You know, there are a startup, fifteen people, but they've been around for seven years, and or I think maybe even more actually. And you know, even though fifteen people is a pretty small company, man, there's some cobwebs when you get when you're talking about you know nearly a decade, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a point where the CEO, the, the support team was talking about um, the way they did things, and he and the CEO was like totally. Like, this is a big strategic thing that they were talking about. And the CEO was like totally uninformed. And he was just floored. He was like, how do I not know about this? There's only 15 of us. And it's like, man, silos start to emerge, you know, and, and to your point, like the people don't always all get together because they're, they're trying to, you know, management science says that let's, let's um, become be efficient and, you you know, create our swim lanes and all this stuff. And I don't know, there's just a lot of power and kind of getting the teams together and being able to make a group decision.
0: I have a personal question for you just to kind of shift gears a little bit. Leader to leader, I'm curious. Are you more interested? Like, what excites you more these days, like actually facilitating these things or um, the community that you developed and and building these skills in in other people?
1: Yeah, um, I think the... It's it's a mixture. I'm I'm still on a in a transition. I still enjoy the facilitation quite a bit. I definitely see myself moving more into you know the public speaking, the coaching, the 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 um, community development stuff. Definitely where I'm going to be spending more of my time as the future unfolds. But right now we're at a at a, a stage in our growth where I'm juggling a lot still, right, and having to actually facilitating with clients. I'm, I'm still doing a lot of content development'm I'm, so I'm working in the business and on the business yeah. and looking at how I think about thought leadership and and I'm out there being the spokesperson. so juggling quite a bit and you know my goal would be getting to the point where you know this time next year I've got a few more employees and I'm kind of really focused on the community development, uh, doing more of the the brand spokesperson kind of stuff. Uh, And even reserving a little bit of time for some strategic planning and thought leadership, right? So I feel like I do my best work when when there's, like, there's time just to to shut off, take a day off and just, like, think about things. Not a lot of time for that these days. And Also,
0: like, in the line of work that you're doing, like, you know, obviously, you know, like, exposing people to the way you do it is important, you know. You know, you can't just give someone a handbook and no, say go yeah. good facilitate you know like go do this i mean this is really difficult work it's it, you know it, it can be really stressful it can be really demanding it you know like when you're or, when you're organizing and planning workshops and sprints it's it's really it's difficult uh you can't just get someone a document and go do it they have to especially if you want to imprint on people that's important i agree i asked that question because you mentioned community earlier we didn't get a chance to talk about control the room but that's kind of related to that like just like any event, I'm sure, you know, it evolves. I went to the first one. Thank you for having me there. Yeah, uh, of course. The, th- the thing that I loved about it, I wasn't able to be f- there for the whole thing, but what I loved about that event was that there was more uh, meat than just, okay, uh, you know, how to, you know, facilitate a sprint. Like there were pretty deep concepts of like, well, when you're inviting someone into your space, how do you welcome, and you're like all mm. these, these things that help people connect and and do do these things together i mean what is motivating you to do that event like is it was the motivation to propel you know to help uh voltage control or is it is it something more personal like what what is it you like really love about this event um what is it and and what are you hoping to really accomplish with it
1: yeah you know it was of course the fact that it integrated with the brand and and what we were where we were headed as far as like a company, like I think that was more of a like acceptance criteria for the, for the crazy idea, right? It's like okay, yeah, that aligns. Like maybe we should do it. That allowed us to to not say no. There's plenty of passionate crazy ideas I have that the team's like, no, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but with this one, you know, the reason that it surfaced and the the thing that really drives me to do it, and you know, not and it, I wouldn't. It's not something that I would. I would just delegate to someone else, right? It's not like, oh, this is just a thing that voltage control needs to do and I'll get it started and hand it off. I think it's going to be something that, we, uh, that, will, that I'll continue to be highly engaged in. And it's because I'm super passionate about supporting the community and being there with facilitators and having a community of practice that we can all rally around. And it's just amazing to me when I see the the community supporting each other. Like I I love to be there for the community and we've been doing these Thursday virtual workshops to just help everyone upskill on on what it means to to, to facilitate virtually and and you mentioned how hard this work is and I can tell you it's even harder virtually. It's so much okay, more Okay, talk about that a little bit. Oh man, it is there's so much more to like manage. I even recommend you have at least two facilitators because you need someone to like you can't um in a room, you can walk in and immediately sense where the tension is, if someone's upset, if someone needs to be attended to. In the virtual room, so much can be hidden. I mean, if people who have cameras on, it helps. But even so, like there's only so much fidelity you have. There's only so much signal you have. And um, there are there's some things that you can watch out for, but it's very exhausting. We humans have had thousands of years of building up innate capabilities And now we're, um, and we've only had like a few years, um, in the grand scheme of things, maybe 10, 20 years to build the tools and build skills around those tools. We've been building skills on recognizing human emotion since the day we were born. Right. And so, so there, there's a lot missing there. And so if you're talking about concentrating on who's present and who needs help, And dealing with like the breakout room tools or like moving the technology around and, you know, it's, it's very exhausting. And so having someone else that's focused on the content Mm -hmm. and making sure we're moving things along really, 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 really good. Um, You also just have to do a lot more upfront planning. You know, you have to, if you're going to have any kind of adaptability and um, and if you're anti-fragile at all and you're thinking, then you're going to have to have tools that you can swap in and out. It's not at a whiteboard. You can just draw up a quick like diagram, and we just get after it. You know, um, virtual whiteboard it's not quite there. You have to like have your you have to have your templates in place ahead of time, and um, and if you're gonna and if you want to have optionality, then you got to have a ton of options in there. And so, just kind of that preparation is is pretty huge. And the tools are the tools still need a lot of work. We we're big fans of Mural and Zoom. Okay, I was and, just about um, to ask about yeah. Uh, yeah tools it's a it's somewhat of a religious debate but i really like the fact that that murals really you know mariano came to the 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 first two sprint conferences and um he's always been really supportive of the community he's he's sponsored control the room and i just like to support them because they seem to really care about facilitators they also seem to be a lot more laser focused on the problem versus like trying to throw every trying to solve weight like they're not adding project management the features, you know, they're, they're, they seem to be laser focused on the problem, which I appreciate. And I think that the, they get my bet as an investor, um, taking an investor mindset to how I pick which software I want to use. Right. And then the thing we are noticing though, is there is a gap because you've got, you know, how you move between zoom and, and mural and how you, um, control your participants in a way that, um, leaves them freedom to maneuver those are big decisions like how much control you use how much, how loose you are how tight you are and so we've been building some tools to sit in the middle um, and right now we've been using them internally just to kind of tech enable our facilitations and the plans to open that up in the next month so that we can um give people some extra horsepower and we'll, we'll make it free for the foreseeable future so that we can learn and figure out like where the where the real power is and, and then we'll kind of so we'll where where it.
0: should people be looking for that when it comes? Like, should they subscribe to your newsletter or? Yeah,
1: the, we'll be announcing it on the newsletter, so they could go to voltagecontrol.com and sign up. Um, also, the control the room um, has. Uh, if you want, if you're really really anxious to see the loom video and get on the waiting list, it's controltheroom.com slash control room The name of the product is Control Room. And, oh, that's um, cool. and, but yeah, if it's uh, if that's a mouthful, then you can just go to vulturecontrol.com and sign up for the newsletter and we'll be letting people know all about it.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So, I mean, you, you're big into this stuff. You do design sprints. You do a lot of other stuff, but design sprints is a component of what you do. You also do a lot of events with Jake Knapp from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you guys have a friendship and you talk a lot in your opinion. what does the future of sprint methodology look like?
1: Wow, it's really it's really hard to say, you know. I think we're in a transitionary moment with all this um, need to to go virtual, and we've been we've been planting some flags around how to approach this stuff virtually. I think we will start to see some adaptation around how people do this work virtually. One of the problems is the amount of uh, time you can spend in a virtual workshop and without just losing your mind. And so like five days straight, like all day is, is unrealistic. And so,
0: so like, for example, are you saying that maybe sprints are now like half days for two weeks or something like that?
1: Yeah. Or you, you think about uh, the individual time. Can be done without being s- sitting in front of a camera because think about it during this interview. I mean, partially it's because it's being recorded, but we've been framed up, and you know we're kind of using the, uh, the the law of thirds or the rule of thirds, whichever it is, <laughs> and um, and we're kind of framed up, and we're not moving very much. But in a real meeting. And a workshop, you're kind of, you slouch for a little bit and then you kind of move over here and then you get up and go to the trash can. You kind of stand up or what, like, you, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you lean over to talk to someone and none of that happens. Right. So that's why it's partially so exhausting. Just kind of sitting st- the, just so still. And so just chained to this like little, like a uh, two by two box. Right. And, um, and so, that's why we like to bake in a lot more breaks. We Any opportunity, we can to just take some, give some homework and say, we're going to reconvene in three hours or whatever it is. Um, but the important thing is if you're going to give the homework, there has to be some sort of social pressure. They have to understand what's what they're going to do with that asset they're creating. And then they will hopefully understand that, you know, I'm going to be kind of somewhat called out if I don't have this thing ready because I'm going to have to stand up and show it. Right. Right. The, the critique is happening. And, um, and I think there's some, there's some leeway there, but you're right. Um, it's not just taking the breaks. You could, you could do a two week half days each. You could certainly, um, just play with timing a lot more because you're not having to fly people out. Those boundaries aren't as, aren't as clear. You know, I, I just published an article in Forbes about, you know, the design of, um, virtual experiences. And one of the points I made was that in you know, the time becomes a lot more fluid and, and the cost of things, uh, the dynamics around the, the capital that you lay out, is different. Right. So, um, let's imagine that you had a team that was distributed across like, you know, um, South America, Asia, Europe, et cetera, and you were going to bring them together for, for a summit. And maybe the ideal design would be, you know, four hours on a, Monday and then four hours on a Friday because you really needed that in between time to let some things gel and bake. And then, you know, and something else was going to happen with some other splinter groups or whatever. Um, you'd never even conceive of that design because the the sheer logistical nightmare of flying all those people in having hotels all week. And then like, and they're just like twiddling their thumbs between like, you just wouldn't do it. Right. Because it's like, well, I wouldn't even conceive of it because like, my brain won't let me go there. But as soon as you start entertaining this notion that like, oh wow, the, the boundaries look a little different, then it opens your brain up to a whole new possibility of like designs that you wouldn't have otherwise.
0: On a personal level, what do you feel like your your biggest challenges are this year or challenges and opportunities that you're facing this year?
1: Challenges and opportunities, yeah. Gosh, I mean the the transition to virtual has been a really exciting challenge and also a big opportunity. I've really leaned in on it just uh, head first. And, uh, you know, the thing I tell people is, is that we are no strangers to working as a distributed team. My entire team is distributed. We've done plenty of virtual workshops. And I was telling you earlier that we often will do our biz dev and sales as a workshop to understand the client's needs. And all of our planning work um, is done in the same way. And, but typically the clients want us, wanted us to execute as in-person, face-to-face. And in fact, a lot of our clients right now haven't canceled projects. They've just said, hey, let's wait until we can do this face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And um, that's an immediate challenge is trying to convince people not to wait. Uh, I believe that the, you're in, don't let your innovation wait. There is not going to be a normal. Like, you know, we're not going back to the way things were. Things are going to be markedly different. And if you, if you keep putting it off, um, it could be a while. And, and I think that will only contribute to uh, a slowing down because if you, if you wait, then you'll produce less value, which like reduces returns. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's just a a somewhat downward spiral that's just going to contribute it to. And I just think that, um, there's a lot of opportunity right now there. You can do a lot without the cost of travel, and coordination around logistics and, and the designs become a lot more creative so I'm really fascinated by that and I'm really fascinated by the opportunity of how we can um, really level up facilitators for this new era that, that's being ushered in and um, also we just launched a bunch of workshops we've got every week we've got a two day series or a two day workshop that we're kind of putting together into the spring series really excited about it we're doing the sales sprint next week so how to use Facilitation to enable and empower sales. So oh, interesting! Whether, I can't wait to check that out. Yeah, whether you're like a full-on salesperson or just you know a consultant that needs to like you know close the deal, um, these are these are really great techniques to kind of like just put together some agendas you can follow and kind of walk through how the tools work. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, and then yeah. Anyway, voltagecontrol.com slash events. We got them all listed and pretty excited to, to launch those and just continue this journey.
0: That's awesome, Douglas. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and for going over time. I know yeah, we were okay. going to have a lot to talk about. Tell everyone how they can find you. I mean, you've already mentioned Voltage Control, but tell everyone how they can find out about everything that you're doing and everything that you've created.
1: Yeah, every you know, we've got a really active blog. We're you know, at least uh, two to five posts a week, so there's a lot of content flowing to learn about the stuff. So definitely check that out at VoltageControl.com slash blog. And, um, you know, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn, um, Instagram and Twitter as well, but like Instagram, the thing I like about LinkedIn is I feel like I, I make deeper connections and, and, um, and get to know people and that's where I meet my, um, the people I end up collaborating with the most. And so definitely reach out, connect and would love to get a relationship going.
0: I like LinkedIn too. Not many people would agree with you and I, but I think LinkedIn is pretty great. <laughs> Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks again for stopping by, Douglas. We'll see you the next time on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Cheers.
1: Peace. Hustle is brought to you by FunSize, a digital service and product design agency that works with inspiring teams to uncover opportunities, evolve popular products, bring new businesses to market, and prepare for the future. Learn more at funsize.co. I'm Edgar Briseno, a design lead at FunSize. Thanks for listening to Hustle and be on the lookout for our next episode.